Locust Radio. All right, welcome to the uh, second part of uh, this month's show of Locust Radio, The Paid Half. Thank you very much for being a subscriber. Uh, please uh, pass on our Patreon to others who you think might enjoy this. And I guess we're going to hop right into it uh, with uh, another chapter from Tish's uh, book, Sounds. Tish, if you want to go ahead and take it away. Uh, sure. So this is uh, chapter five. This is from Avi's perspective. I woke startled. The alarm for my new job was chirping. I slapped at my phone, forgetting for a moment that work alarms for, of this size required a fingerprint to turn off. I unearthed my phone from the old blankets and silenced it. The screen lit the dim room, the dim bedroom, and I looked around with immediate regret. My feed was clogged with videos of a recent arrest. Two women in dark clothes were pulling a suitcase, seemingly unconserved, with a cop angrily pointing a gun at them. I watched it play with a deepening frown. I found it strange that the women weren't more upset about being taken in for what would likely be production and distribution of classist material. Prison work was scary enough to warrant a certain frantic frantic nervousness among anyone being hassled by a cop. These women almost seemed amused when the cop knelt down and threw the suitcase contents all over the street. The person filming leaned over to pick up a picture and the cop that the cop had thrown and the video abruptly stopped. I turned my phone off and tossed it to the side back into the pile of blankets. I had time for a shower, which I would need to pass lemons inspection. There was no way he'd want his personal custodian unwashed and smelling like yesterday's cheap weed and energy drinks. I lit a joint and shuffled into the bathroom, letting the skunky cloud perfume my bedroom. After a quick wash, I dressed in a fresh, clean uniform. I had half an hour left to make it to work. Plenty of time. My commute was uneventful. No one from the neighborhood was around, and the shops at this end of the next district were also empty. The people in this area of the city kept a tight schedule, whether they wanted to or not. The giant silver palm tree was shining like a beacon at the end of the street. I checked my phone again. Twenty minutes. I ducked into the pay-and-go, hoping to see Hector, and asked about the arrest. Bob, the retail bot, quirked his head as he usually did, processing my face against mysterious government databases. Retail bots' official purpose were to gather purchasing statistics and customer demographics. The government was obsessed with quantifying the people of the city, but they never seemed to gather enough information to actually do anything. I picked out two large bottles of Go Light energy drink, an Omni meal, two boxes of chocolate cubes, and a breakfast brick big meal from the hot case. I knew the job would mean short but intense bouts of cleaning amidst long stretches of waiting to be beckoned. I paused and grabbed another bottle of water and another Omni meal, checked my bag to make sure my phone charger was inside, and saw it settled against my, no my notebook. Bob followed me with his eyes as I approached. I set my snacks and drinks down and waited patiently. It was a treat for me to watch a robot scan things so quickly. They were faster than their human counterparts. You could sometimes get, the, get them to complain about humans, which was also a treat. Once outside, I stopped to check the time again. Fifteen minutes early was fine. I stopped at the office to drop off my bag of food, minus the energy water. I chugged. I put on my apron and gloves and took the bucket of basic supplies to the Imperial Gratitist Hall. The room was empty. By 6 p.m., Lemon was still absent. I checked the status of the job, just in case, and was happy to see that I was back on on-call. I could leave. My walk home was quick. I got back into bed. Four hours later, I woke, uh, I woke up feeling rested and set about feeding myself. I just lit a joint when my phone buzzed. The screen flashed red and white. I was being summoned. I hovered the joint over the ashtray, paused, and then took one final long hit, then stubbed it out and tucked it behind my left ear. The streets were empty. Uh, the silver palm looked almost completely abandoned. The neon sign gave the front of the building an eerie vibe. I ducked in and waved to the security bot working the front. I threw on my apron as my phone received another round of call-in notices. No doubt Lemon was hammering the button, complaining about how slow custodians are. Finally, I reached the Imperial Gratitist Hall and knocked hard on the door. It jerked open seconds later. 
Lemon, looking frantic, peeked his head out, his eyes darting up and down the hall. He reached out, grabbed me by the apron, and yanked me through the door. He was radiating a worried, frenetic energy. The room was in shambles. I barked out a humorless laugh as I looked around, hardly noticing I was tugging at my own hair in exasperation. There was broken glass near the bar and a growing puddle from a tipped-over wine bottle. I turned to Lemon, mouth agape. I bit back a snide remark about how nice it must have been to have a button to press to clean up your messes. Lemon sat down on the end of the bed and lit a joint. He waved his hand around the room, then buried his face in his hands. I was already making a mental list of what needed to be done. The money was the only thing that made this mess funny. I ducked down to peek under the bed, planning to start there, and fell back in surprise. There were a pair of feet sticking out from a blanket. Are you hiding? I asked, tapping the bottom of the foot. When no response came, I gave the foot a tug. Still no response. Sir? I asked, looking up at Lemon, who had refused to lift his head. Clean it up, Lemon ordered flatly. His jaw muscles were rippling as he tried to keep himself contained. I turned back to the feet poking out from under the gold silk blanket. I poked them again with a gloved finger. My shoulders sank. You are going to clean this up, aren't you? Lemon's voice was less demanding, but the sharp edge was still there. You're not going to make an issue of this, are you, Sexton? I closed my eyes. I grabbed the body by the ankles and pulled until it started to slide out from under the bed. Lemon watched silently, puffling, puffing hard on the joint between his thin lips. I recognized the liaison, Jermina Grozik, immediately. Her eyes were closed like she was sleeping. I might have been able to pretend that that had been the case, if not for the knife sticking out of her right temple. I staggered back a step, body cold with shock. Jemina had been so sweet, always welcoming and kind to me and the other employees at the Silver Palms. She had, as the rumor had gone, almost immediately agreed to take on the dangerous work without a second thought. Lemon watched me from the bed, eyes bloodshot and dead. He was still waiting for an answer. I had to tell someone. I imagined turning the senator into the police. Cops loved Senator Lemon. He was their biggest advocate in the Senate. They always looked the other way for him, as the rumors went. I sank to my knees. I could rock this boat and end up in a fucking work camp or a body bag, or I could take this money and get out of this city. I'll clean this, but this is fucked up. If you want me to do this, you need to leave. Give me four hours. Lemon dropped the joint on the floor and crushed it with his heel. Without another word, he left me alone with Jemina. I crawled over to her body and pulled off my gloves. I grab her grabbed her hand and squeezed it weakly. I'm sorry, Jemina, I'm sorry. I wasn't sure why I was apologizing, but I couldn't stop. I know I should say something, but then we'll both be dead. I'm sorry he did this to you, but I don't want to die. I wouldn't expect you to say anything either. This is fucked up. Fuck. I dropped Jemina's hand and fumbled the gloves back on. I gently wrapped Jemina in the blanket. After a moment of silence, I, I carefully carried her to the basement incinerator and slipped her in. What happens next? You'll, you'll find out. Yeah! You'll find yeah. out in Locust uh, Review number three. This is a written poem, and it is uh, kind of about all the 2020 stuff. It's like, I feel like it's my 2020 poem. Um, this one's a little lewd, so I apologize for that. And it's called How to Make the Bed When Your House is on Fire. Right click, open Lincoln New Window. <laughs> <laughs> Love it already. I'm already clutching my pearls. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there are decades when nothing happens, there are weeks when decades happen. Vladimir Lenin. Attachment hurts, and like a koala on the Barbie, I'm burnt. Falling back on an abstract, let my waist paint the picture of my nationality. I just threw out a thousand calories of popcorn, dead, wrapped in plastic, two fortune cookies, without bothering to learn the prophecy. It will be if it's meant to be, or so the late stage mantra of the new age tells me. Shout out to the animals in Australia, cremated unceremoniously. A hundred thousand dollars brought in by nude selfies. Let's get Weezer to sing, sing the theme song once again. God bless the rain for these thirsty men. Clits out for Harambe. A dingo ate my baby. Yoda, hold up. 
I pledge to eat nothing but impossible whoppers until I grow tits big enough to be called knockers. Set Mark Fisher lectures to a jingle. I'm aware pink and white striped thigh high socks to my Pornhub charity celebrity jingle. Told Yeezus to take the wheel, but it was a Sunday and he was sipping on day old lemonade. When Andre gonna get back in the game? Drones over Iran, first hit of the new decade. World War III will be live streamed. You can watch it on Twitch or or with a cowboy in a bowling alley reading Baudrillard in a Big Lebowski graphic novelization. The world finally knew peace the day AOC released. Pics of them feet. I swear to the meme gods I saw the mushroom cloud pixelate. Can I get an object petite? Amen. Sitting in the post-apocalyptic glitter nail polish utopia, curiosity haunts me. I dig through the trash and break apart the cookies. A window of opportunity won't open itself. The great aim of education is not knowledge, but action. I repeat the cached cookie script, then mutter why they gotta tell me, as the crow perches atop the globe and begins to spread its wings before feasting on my open tabs. Damn. That was great. Thank thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I I don't know if I have much to explanation beyond that one. Besides, I I also, if it's not clear, uh, consume a lot of right-wing media. Um, I don't know. It's an unhealthy obsession. I get really obsessed with trying to understand it, um, especially like the more conspiratorial-minded right-wing media. Mm Mm-hmm. So like there's definitely a bunch of ironic conspiracy theories thrown in there, such as uh, the um, the impossible whoppers. Um, I don't know yeah. if you know this. Yeah, there's this idea amongst. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. That, that I don't whole need to soy, explain. Soy boy thing. <laughs> yeah, the well, soy boy shit. Yeah. The the soy boy thing is yeah one thing, but now they specifically think that like the impossible um, burgers are like genetically designed to. Uh, there's two ones that I've heard that like either to turn you to emasculate men, which is a big one, but also to change your DNA so that you are no longer human and you cannot be <laughs> redeemed through uh, in, uh, accepting Christ as your savior. <laughs> like, Honestly, the, that, that, the burgers are great. designed to do this. Like that's that sounds great. I, I gave up being a vegetarian a few years ago. Now I'm wondering if I should. Go back. I, I can become the perfect post-human now. Like, this is great. With yeah, I look no all vegan for Satan. Yeah, damn straight. We live a few blocks from the Burger King. I feel like I want to go get some. Impossible Whopper is not bad. I mean, this is not a sponsorship by any means. Well, I'm just interested in my DNA changing, really. Yeah. Burger King against capitalist realism. Perfect. I also loved the uh, the subtle. I heard a subtle Twin Peaks reference in there with the dead wrapped in plastic that like sparked in my mind instantly because that's a line from the first episode. Yes, thank you. I'm glad that uh, Kim noticed. Um, And that, yeah, and that was, I I mean, I I love Twin Peaks. It's a great show. But for some reason, Dead Wrapped in Plastic became a really popular meme uh, Mm -hmm. towards the beginning of the year. I think it was in like March or something like that. You saw it in a lot of just like popping up and stuff. You know, there'd be a couple panels of something and then it would end with, Dead, wrapped in plastic. <laughs> right up. And then, as I was staring at my, I did. I, I, you know, it's personal for me too. I did. I threw out a thousand calories worth of candy popcorn, and I, as looking at it, because I, and I was like, oh man, I'm fucking awful. Why am I just throwing out this food? And then knowing I had, it was given to me in like a holiday gift basket, and I had no desire to eat it. Um, and I thought it was dead, wrapped in plastic. <laughs> so one of the things we thought we could talk about um in the second half of today's show uh was narrative conceptual art and to sort of frame that uh both like uh, uh you know why I, I thought maybe we could talk about it but also why it matters around 2014 2015 i was sort of wrestling with the white cube problem and the problem of institutional contemporary art now, for folks who don't know, the white cube problem is the problem with the standard white cube exhibition space or gallery. It's a 
byproduct of modernism, before the 20th century, art was hung and displayed salon style, at least from the 1600s, 1600s, 1700s on um, in the European tra- and uh, European tradition. Art's a, art was a commodity. Um, it was a huge market at that time. So they hung it that way, like sort of the shelves at a pretentious Walmart. Uh, walls were covered in paintings there were sculptures everywhere and you would go in but in the 20th century the white cube form became dominant an approach if i recall that was invented more or less at the museum of modern art in new york city in the early part of the 20th century individual artworks would be separated out with minimal quote-unquote distraction so the viewer could reflect directly on each one and the problem with this uh, was described really well by an artist named danica radoshevich in an article at Red Wedge magazine titled Zombie Gallery, the White Cube and the German Ideology. Um, Of course, referring to the Marx and Engels book, The German Ideology. And Danny wrote, in essence, that the White Cube is sort of like the physical art world manifestation of bourgeois ideology. Artworks were separated from their context, isolated from each other. The individual objects of quote-unquote genius were floating independent of social relations and social meaning. And I started to think what, you know, and Danny's solution was to just not use the art space at all. And I'm more sympathetic to Danny's position now than I was then. But I started to think, what if we treated the art space like a theatrical space and constructed contextuality in the space itself? What if we treated the art space like Brechtian theater or something like that? Now, the second thing, the problem with contemporary institutional art is related to what uh, the uh, theorist Boris Groys called the weak avant-garde. The contemporary avant-garde institutional art has avoided strong politics uh, that were there for modern art and the strong imagery of popular and classical culture. The art world has sort of become a place of cynical disbelief. So zombie formalism, empty conceptual gestures that looked like conceptual art from the 60s or 70s, but without any of the actual content or meaning. And relational aesthetics, like putting a giant slide in the art museum and, you know, basically making a tiny, boring theme park inside the art museum. And art that avoided really politics and expression in any form. Um, Mark Fisher sort of talks about this in his essay, K-Punk, or the Glam Punk Art Pop Discontinuum, when he's talking about hippies. Now, whether he's entirely fair to hippies or not, you know, that that's another question, but he says... When hippies rose from their supine Hedino haze to assume power, a very short step, so he's obviously talking about rich hippies, they brought their contempt for sensuality with them. Brute, functional, utilitarian, plus aesthetic sloppiness and an imperturbable sense of their own rights are the hallmarks of bourgeois sensibility. What we find in the contemporary artists Tracy Emin, Damien Hurst, and Rachel Whiteread, and whoever that idiot was who rebuilt his dad's house in the Tate, is disdain for artif- the artificial, for art as such, in a desperately naive bid to re- re-represent that pre-Warholian, pre-Duchampian, pre-Kantian unadorned real. Like our whole, wo- like our whole won't-get-fooled-again po-Romo culture, what they fear above all is being glamoured. This is like similar to what uh, like John Berger talked about, about the bourgeois suspicion of seduction in art. The glamour they're suspicious of, and this is related to, I think, some subtextual anti-queer and bourgeois sensibilities, is aesthetic seduction of art being art. So this is sort of the context of what I was thinking about when I started to really look at Moscow conceptualism, as well as some of the Eastern European conceptual art and the work of Ilya and Emilia Kabakov in particular, narrative conceptual art, conceptual art with a story, which is very different than the conceptual art that existed in the United States often in a realist and absurd story. And for like the Moscow conceptualists in the 1970s and 1980s, this was sort of a psychic and cultural negotiation with the official narratives of the the false socialism, I would say, of the Soviet system. The Moscow conceptual arts were underground. There was no official art world avant-garde in the USSR at the time. Kabakov's day job was illustrating children's books, but he started to create installation art in his Moscow studio for a small audience of a few dozen people. And these installations were character-based, fantastic situations. Most famously, the 1985 installation, repeated in the West later in 1989 and after, The Man Who Flew Into Space from His Apartment. So in the installation, The Man Who Flew Into Space from His Apartment, the apartment is one of the 
shittier communal living apartments that working class Muscovites were forced to live in, and uh, especially the poor working class uh, Muscovites. And this character has seemingly covered his walls in Soviet space race posters and sketches and plans for how to personally escape into outer space. And there's this seat hanging in the middle of it, um, connected to pull, like uh, uh, wires and so on, that looks like a Coyote Roadrunner slingshot type device, and a hole in the ceiling uh, where he has evidently shot himself into the cosmos. And I, I, you know, since I first saw this installation sometime in the '90s, I always loved it. And I suggest folks Google it if you haven't seen it before. Maybe we can put a link in the show notes or whatever. But I started thinking about like this sort of self-fictionalization of the artwork uh, by Kabakov, its narrative conceptual aspect as a way to sort of like invert that Brechtian idea of interrupting belief in theater to allow for critical distance. So if the art world's become a cynical space, what if we use this narrative conceptual art to interrupt disbelief, right? Allow people to believe in things again, because that's a big part of Kabakov's strategy. He wasn't allowed to have an official art space to display his work in under the Stalinist dictatorship, so he created this magical space to put the artwork in. And obviously, the Kabakovs are ambivalent, you know, at best about socialism. Um, but maybe from an anti Stalinist tradition of socialism, and as a critical realist or a socialist from below, I think, you know, asking like, how does the man who flew into space read? Here's a guy who escapes drudgery, dictatorship, a failing economy, who is working class or poor who escapes through space through this transmutation of Soviet propaganda and this alchemy of found objects. And in doing so, that constrained subjectivity, that ambiguous agency um, that they have as an exploited and oppressed person is overcome. And this story and installation allows for that glamour that like Mark Fisher was talking about to return to the artwork, the creation of a narrative context for the artwork. The artwork's no longer alone, separated off in the white cube, but it's interpenetrated by other things, social, other artworks, other drawings, and so on. It's something that's been like foundational in like my thinking uh, for like the ongoing project that Tish and I are doing with the, the Born Again Labor Museum. But I also think it's that that militancy. I was watching a documentary, and this is the last thing I'll say about um, Ilya and Emilia Kabakov before um, we recorded today that just came out. Um, and Emilia Kabakov evidently usually deals with the art museum people because. Uh, Ilya Kabakov cannot take bureaucratic instructions from anyone, which is why he hasn't had a show in Russia, even though he's probably the most well-known Russian contemporary artist. They were doing a show in St. Petersburg that was going to be sponsored by Gazprom, the, the Russian uh, natural gas company. And this official from Gazprom, which is now a private company, it used to be owned by the, the state um, before um, 1991, um, it starts lifting off all these things she wants for the show. Um, and Kabakov, Ilya Kabakov just says, fuck off in the middle of it. He, you know, and Emilia says he was had to hide what he thought for 50 some years. He's just not doing it anymore. And this is repeat. This is a repeated theme about this constraint on these characters in his in his installations being overcome in some way. Uh, like one of my, another really interesting one. This last thing I'll say is that. He recreated at a big art exhibition the communal apartments, a communal apartment inside a toilet um, and so on. It was even like separated out by gender and so on. Um, he's done a number of these sort of fantastic situations that point beyond the limitations that are put on people. And obviously the Soviet Union in the 1980s is very different than life today. But I think like that. But there's these elements that like like an interesting strategic possibility. How do you and this absolutely uh, connects with uh, all the all the uh, um, questions we had about psychedelia and the enclosure of creative space and mental space uh, through through uh, the internet. What how is it that both of you, as socialists, as radicals, as Marxists, approach your art in a way that actually relates to the world instead of just sort of hemming it into the white cube, as the two of you. Or as, as Adam would say, is there a way that to you, like a concern and a way of thinking about it that you think maybe other artists who are, are less less conscious of this lack? Um, I guess for me, it boils down to my art just never really working in the white cube to begin with. In the sense of like, I've had shows at galleries, but I 
um, just economically would do way worse if it was on the wall than if I just had like, if it was more just like tabling sort of things with posters and, and buttons and things that like everyday people can buy um, as opposed to like paintings in a gallery space. Now uh, I feel like everyone is escaping the white cube just as of out of necessity, like galleries, unless, I mean, maybe, you know, in Florida galleries are open, but at least in uh in chicago that doesn't seem to be i don't know it, it's it like obviously like covid that's part of the reason like i got into the show and even started the web comic was just like ha- when things were originally shut down having more time uh to do stuff but then also just not having a way to present it in the traditional means but it feels like I don't know if it's I don't know if it's my politics. I don't know if it's my art style, but it feels like the white cube was never even an option for me because it's just every time I would try to like be a part of the world, the art world, there would be. And I know I'm sure Adam's experiences, too, of just like doors being like slammed in your face of just like so much gatekeeping that goes into. And I don't I don't know, you know, whose ass you have to kiss to like get into the into traditional gallery spaces in general yeah well it's a it's a big club and we ain't in it yeah yeah i guess for me because i i relate a lot to what uh omnia said there um but thinking about for me i guess the way i try to resist that is i really a lot of my art focuses on autonomous action which is like you know a surrender to the passion of art you know like like trying to really embody it um and have it like as an embedded practice and it almost becomes like ritualistic in that way and i don't think that necessarily can stop art from becoming white box you know and like fitting and being commodified in that way i like the idea of what adam was saying with this story with um the man who flew to space from his apartment like it also relates to nostalgia as well, because like from my understanding of it, though that era of space glorification um, with the first cosmonaut going into space was his youth was. Uh, and, you know, so he's like trying to like reclaim that in these stories and how we could do that today in public spaces would be something really wonderful and exactly what we need. It's like this return of a narrative you know it's like getting past this postmodern cynicism it's a yearning for a positive uh meta narrative out there hmm. yeah god i would love to see like gorilla art performances or installations ex- exhibitions that go up once we have public space back but also like there is that kind of you know even after you know covid the, the vaccine starts to take hold and things like that i you know it's amazing today every public space is a pseudo public space there's some sort of you know municipal law that says you can do this but you can't do that and you know never mind you know that, that that's saying nothing of if we you we were trying to going to try to do like a a guerrilla performance in say a mall which is like the epitome and the model of all pseudo public space, so, I mean, which again raises all these questions that we had from the uh, from the first part of the show, uh, you know, and it makes me think. I mean, actually, this is a pretty interesting way to bring in some of the some of the recent events in Peoria. <laughs> <laughs> Peace <laughs> land and cookies. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of I'm yeah. I'm really curious to find out who the person actually was. Like the person that actually, because okay, so I'll I'll, ex- I'll explain. So yeah, yeah. D- d- tell uh, us a story, Tish. It's really like I, I fucking love every minute of it. So, so this artist in Peoria. Let me double check the artist's name here. I have it open in a tab. Joshua Hawkins. So somebody contacted him and said, "Look, I'm opening a bakery in this business. Could you do all this? Do this really awesome mural on the side of the business." You know, Russian propaganda poster, Koki Monster, and at the bottom, in Russian, Cyrillic lettering and all, peace, land, and cookies. So the guy, like, paints it. He's like, this is cool. You know, he it's the thing is up for, like, a week. 
And he he gets paid in like non-shady business deals where he's like meeting this person who he thinks is comp the the business owner. Um and they're paying him and they're like, it's great, it's fantastic. And he he gets the second half of the money, keeps calling the 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 person that that initially hired him, they don't answer. And then the guy who actually owns the business is like, Why the fuck are you painting this on my business? This is this is not a mural, this is graffiti. They're, they painted over it. It was up for like a week. And there are actually people leaving little uh, stuffed animals as a memorial. If if we consider all of it together, is this some kind of like metamodern narrative conceptual piece by this person? I, I think it winds up being one regardless of whether that's an intent. Because clearly, uh, if we're to believe the, the bakery owner, the shop owner, then... Yes, there was someone posing to be this person who had the idea, I'm going to hire another artist to paint on a building that I'm going to act like is mine but isn't. So it ends up being, frankly, conceptual and narrative in some way, shape, or form, even if that's not the intent behind it. Though I'd be willing to bet it is. I'm just yeah. wondering, who's, who's, this, who's this mystery patron, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'd be interested to know. Well, because the the owner's reaction is so negative and people are so mad at him for painting over. And now he's trying to like make up and like hire and be like, oh, well, I'm going to have him paint something else. But people are still mad about it because yeah. it was a dumb thing to do to paint over it. Yeah. I think, when I think of like uh, the constrained, you know, agency, the ambiguous agency of working class people in the face of all the horrible absurdisms of capitalism i frequently think of peoria illinois yeah yeah um the you know there's a pretty you know that old expression from vaudeville and theater that you know the question will it play in peoria referred to the close-minded uh you know banality of peoria's middle class right mm -hmm. so you have that at the same time you have you've had a militant labor history um particularly at the caterpillar uh plants but you also had decades yeah. of layoffs um, and mm -hmm. decades of restructuring that have impoverished a large part of the community. So it's one of those towns where you think might think of it as poor and posted, but there's also a lot of wealth. Oh, God, um, yeah. And it's a huge contra a contradiction. It's similar places like Paducah, Kentucky, or and so on. So I think that it's such a wonderful gesture against that, right? It's a gesture against whatever the intent of the person who did it, whether they were just trolling or whether it's thought it doesn't matter so much to me because and the fact that people loved it speaks to like how much they want something else yeah mm. absolutely and there's also i mean this, this this actually raises some of the questions about nostalgia i remember the, the conversation that uh that omnia brought up um and tish discussed in the in the first half which is that Anyone who, any, certainly anyone of our generation and the generation before, for that matter, has this intensely pure, I mean, most people have this intensely pure reaction to someone like Cookie Monster, right? Just because, yeah, I mean, it's like Sesame Street. And Sesame Street also came from that very interesting moment in the 1960s where, A, there was enough of a sense of, like, public broadcasting and PBS could actually you know, could be a public common, could be a common good and a public good. And the idea that interesting education for children should apply to all children. So it's public broadcasting and it's, it's got good production values. It's all, it's playful. It's funny. Um, and all of that, as opposed to today where, where uh, Sesame Street itself has been enclosed by HBO now. Uh, so we have this, this intensely like, like when I see Cookie Monster, there is that little part of, you know, the, the the little part of me that's still five years old that immediately just starts laughing and, you know, getting all all cute, right? Because it's Cookie Monster and saying what Cookie Monster always did, which is there should be enough cookies for all, you know. <laughs> and so I think you, regardless of whatever, I, I think the love that people have, it, it, it's interesting to me that this is, you know, obviously very much pulling on the sort of, you know, high um Promethean aesthetics of the height of the Soviet Union um with that and regardless of whatever people's own reaction to to socialism whether they they still loved the mural 
um, and are leaving are leaving little little trinkets by it. Like that's that's really interesting. When people one see. one thing that I think is really funny with it is the um, so you have kind of like the history of graffiti and then how it relates to street art and then street art becomes like this gentrified, like high art form where people are paying like millions of dollars for Banksy. Um, but if you go back before that happened to street art, you know, graffiti artists and street artists were risking everything to put up this art that is like for the common, you know? And but you're you're risking legal ramifications and it's this temporary thing that's just going to be painted over where this the artist is completely left in the dark and is paid by this like, you know, mystery uh patron. I just think it's so funny because it's like it's not like when it's not like they started the mural and then the person like never paid, like they got paid for their labor for this mural that was destroyed and like ever thought it was going about the legal. It's just, it's, I don't know. Everything about it is very, very interesting to me. It is interesting. It is a, it is a limitation on as a model. Cause I guessing that no one on this call can afford to do that. No. Right. Yeah. Like, right. So like, there's so no way I can pay somebody to paint a mural for me, um, yeah. you know, or whatever. But as interesting as that as as that is, um, obviously the person who did it has some consciousness of socialism because of the slogan they chose, uh, "Land, Bread, and Freedom." Of course, for folks who don't know, being the the Bolshevik slogan at the time of the October Revolution, changed to "Land, Bread, and and Cookies." Peace, 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 land, land and cookies. Yeah, 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 he when he's thinking about art galleries, he's thinking about museums, right? He's not thinking mm-hmm. about selling work. He's thinking about like the, the sort of power you get by putting an object in a museum, for good or bad, which is like you know a, a dual natured thing. But for us, we have um, an art market that is basically a boutique market um, f- for rich people, and it's like retail more generally. It's polarized even more than it used to be. So you have galleries for the really rich and the for-profit art market and then you have like etsy right for the rest of us right yeah yeah, um, yeah. And the non-profit spaces and this is related to what happened to street art the non-profit spaces and the independent art actions in certain cities are irredeemably or irrevocably tied to gentrification at this point so like one of the things i thought about is like moving away like from the gallery altogether i've been thinking more and more about like outsider artists and things like that not not in like a fetishizing their outside way but because of how they situate their work to an audience that is not the art world and so on and i'm not necessarily saying i'm against like putting something in an art show in a real art space quote unquote real art space tish and i were supposed to be in a big contemporary art show in uh vegas in march that got canceled because of the pandemic but I think that's secondary. I remember, like, uh, in 2015, I had a show um, at, you know, a quote-unquote real art gallery or whatever. Um, it was one of the... When I was trying to fictional thing out um, that I had stolen from Kabakov and Moscow Conceptualism, I gave an artist talk. And, like, uh, afterwards, this guy talked to me for, like, an hour. He loved the artist talk. He thought it was fantastic. He loved the work and everything else. And... You know, we ended up talking about like you know what we do for a living, and he was a, a lineman for the county. He worked. He put up. You know, like he was a working class person. I'm like, why the fuck am I wasting my time in this bougie ass space when the people I really want to have interact with my work are not these people at all? This, this is one working class guy came, you right, know, right. to the thing. I might as well go find those people. You know, yeah. like yeah, um, and uh, and so on. So I think that. I think, and that's the the best thing about the, like you know like the mural in Peoria. There's not a, probably a risk of gentrifying that particular area of Peoria right now. Right. Um, right. And, yeah, and I think that's another thing we do. when we're creating artist spaces, creating work, trying to think about that problem and situate our our, our work in a way that it will not contribute to that gentrification. I mean, I, there's a lot of respect for those artists in Berlin who destroyed their own work. 
that was being used to gentrify a neighborhood a few years ago. So thinking of that, um, Adam, it kind of makes me think of in the Acid Communist intro, Fisher talks about the psychedelic spaces, um, which are like, you know, communes and other like alternatively organized spots within society that would operate. Um, I think that's maybe what you're talking about trying to like get to where you have something that because it would have to be an independent gallery sec- uh, functioning in a way that isn't just a small gallery, right? It would have to operate on some kind of community level and provide something to uh, the community that just another shop doesn't, you know? It would have to create a sense of home, a a sense that you're escaping and leaving the uh, rules of capitalist uh, world that's outside, you know? Because that's like what happens when you enter the psychedelic space. the commune you know you're like your world is different right the rules of interaction are not the same but how that could function with art in the same way oh i i definitely think so and that tish and i were planning to try to do something experimental along those lines when we got back here but of course the pandemic has precluded you know um doing something like that but I think that's I think that's exactly right. It has you know some connection to the practical and psychological and so you know like uh, uh, spiritual needs of the people we want to have interacting with our work, and I think that that's part of the like overcoming the decontextualization of artwork, also the decontextualization of ourselves that happens on social media, that you have a bunch of different things in the space that are in a sort of interpenetrating conversation with each other, you know, like uh, that. And this is similar to like the texture aspect of things we were talking about earlier in psychedelia, that there's a, maybe these things are independent, but they're also connected. Maybe you're independent, but you're also connected. Um, not in some like, you know, hippy dippy, like, uh, or like, you know, creepy cult way. Um, but in the fact that that's actually the way things function, um, you know, um, so yeah, I would love to see something like that develop um in the IRL analog space uh when it becomes safe. Um and eventually something that's like a negotiation of several different artists. Like the the you know, do y'all know the old band the the Minutemen? Um not the assholes that patrol the border, but like the the punk band from the early eighties in yeah. LA, the the socialist punk band. And what they did is they had a, they had like a division of labor where like they would alternate writing songs, but everybody had complete control over their own part of each song. They had this weird, radically democratic way of working. And I'd like to see us like moving like in that direction in terms of artwork that it's not separate, but it's not um, but it's not subordinated either. We are absolutely going to need that, especially as things do start to open up again or as things become hopefully more safe. Because we've seen, the past year has seen our whole conception of and relationship to public space already changed so dramatically in so many different directions. Not just with the first lockdown and all of a sudden everyone has to bunker down at home or go to work and be exposed to a deadly disease, you know, that, I think that shook so many people in such a way where all of a sudden they, they became conscious of public space and the potentiality for it to change. Like that was the, I think for millions of people, that was the first time they had thought about public space in such a way that it can be malleable. It can be changed. Then what comes a few months later the Black Lives Matter uprising, which was, again, a transformation of public space in the complete opposite direction. All the, all the boarded-up shops start getting murals painted on them. Uh, you know, the police say, don't take the streets. Fuck you, we take the streets anyway. We don't need your permission to do that. They belong to us. Even, even frankly, yes, smashing and grabbing and thinking and going into, you know breaking open the the front of a Walmart and taking everything you can grab and and conceiving of a new relationship to commodity. Um, You know, this is is why I completely uh, support and defend uh, uh, Vicky Osterweil's in defense of looting. 
um, because it's it, it it is a chance for us to to reconceive what rules over us and whether we have given it the chance to do so um, and to refuse it. Well, this is TikTok uh, shoplifting videos where people are helping each other figure out how the best way to shoplift is. Exactly. You know? Uh, I I was thinking, when when Kabakov came to the West after he left the Soviet Union, he was on the one hand thrilled. He became an international art celebrity and he was able to do whatever he wanted for the first time as an artist. But he also said he he noticed that being an artist in the quote West was incredibly lonely because it's all supposed to be this individual sort of thing. And I think that that's another aspect of things we want to start to strategize how we can cut against this idea that you're just supposed to be this individual quote-unquote genius or whatever the fuck bullshit um and the fact is there's millions of individual geniuses everywhere making great artwork um and then we just have to pretend that's not true because of capitalism it's the same thing as like not being allowed to sample it's the relations versus everybody we have the means now for there to be millions of great artists everywhere you know but capitalism will not allow that to happen. Yeah, sure. And I think after after the pandemic and everything, I think that the stakes of that and the clarity of that being the state. I mean, this isn't to say it's going to be completely clear. There's especially because there's tens of millions of people who did vote for Trump and are going to be trying to violently defend him after all of this. So it's not to say like all of a sudden every single every single facet of reality has been shown to be what it is, um, you know, that, that's always going to be mediated. But I think to a lot of people, they are, they, they've noticed the way that the cities have been transformed and they've noticed the way that they can become more communal spaces. So for me, the question is, and th- this doesn't just go with, uh, you know, we've, we've spoken mostly about um, art, visual art, but I think it can also go for music. You know, like what kind of music can be, rocketed into a public space that all of a sudden it, that, that forces people to recon to to reconsider the way in which they have um related to that space i i think in some ways i don't want to say it's going to be easier to do but the the fertility of the field is a lot more than it than it used to be um prior to the because people have seen public space and be transformed so much and become it uh so radically and so collectively um you know, like it, it to me, it's it's one of the reasons why the the Cookie Monster mural is so much more interesting than just those those metal pillars that have started appearing across uh, the whole planet. Yeah, yeah it's like, hey, this is yeah, this is so obviously artifice, but also it's just like, how is this new? It's like we've all been into an Apple store already. Talk about a white cube. We don't really. It doesn't really add anything in our lives to consider a, it in the Utah desert or a field in Romania. It's like, no, give me Cookie Monster um, redistributing the cookie well. That that's a far more it's far more interesting to me. You know, the monolith thing just made me think of like I used to follow tons of like ARGs and stuff like in early internet and especially like early 4chan reprehensible as it is that was a good place yeah, sure. for finding stuff like that you know and honestly like the first thing I thought when I saw the pillar I was like oh is this is just another like stupid thing that's gonna fizzle out nothing's gonna happen with it it's it's just it's just gonna be dumb shit popping up in other places yeah, and it's not yeah. actually gonna mean anything like, yeah. there are much more interesting ha- things happening. Like you said, the Cookie Monster mural. Yeah. But that's yeah. not going to get the same kind of attention as the stupid fucking monoliths. The, 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 the one asterisk I would put at the end of the, uh, the, uh, the monolith thing is when it accidentally became conceptual, quite obviously apart from any intention of the artists themselves, when all of a sudden a bunch of evangelical Christians and right-wingers who... Oh, that that moment was yeah. fucking like that was dark when they oh, showed yeah. up and said like we don't like any aliens here we're you know this is christ's country like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's always taking time to shit on the space comrades but like <laughs> but i think but it is that those pillars are that cool minimalist aesthetic that is that developed a life of its own that was kind of alien to what the original minimalists, you know, um, were going for, uh, whether you agree with them or not. But it's empty. And and this the, the institutional art world, and this reflects 
the the bearings of the the bourgeoisie overall is terrified of things that say things you know like they don't actually want their art to actually say anything uh, very narrow formally or in terms of, of signification that old thing where the, you can have occasional political art but it can't actually say too much it's like that thing about uh, a situationism without soviets you're playing around with the signs of oppression but you're not saying we can overthrow oppression or anything like that the cookie monster thing whatever the intention of it does um oddly enough um in a number of ways so the that cool minimalist crap although you know maybe it'll just turn out to be a promotion for you know I don't know, a, 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 a cookie store shit or a cookie store. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I was shit, thinking the monolith would be a promotion. But, uh, oh, no, but... yeah. Like the uh, the Simpsons episode with the, the angel skeleton. Yes. Oh, you remember that yeah. one? Exactly. Yeah. Where it, every, yeah. Everyone yeah. thinks it's yeah either proof of an angel or like a early hominid that had two sharks on its arms. Um, but then it, it turns out to just be a viral like marketing for a new mall. Talk about nostalgia. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. That was before the internet that came up with that idea. That's that's from almost 30 years ago and already How they know. <laughs> well you know they predict um, everything. Yeah. The, the, Simpsons <laughs> they do. Are, the Simpsons already did it. Yeah. Um the monolith things though, you're right, like Almost instantly, though, everyone dismissed them. Like, I mean, there was a there was big fanfare, but then you saw memes of them with as being product placement, like turned into yes. Coca Cola, yeah. into a jewel, into a, a Facebook story feed, you know, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I saw and... one as the sorry to cut you. I saw one no. as the McDonald's kiosk that you ordered <laughs> from. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So, that's pretty good. <laughs> Their capitalist realism of that monolith was like, you know, unconsciously felt by people, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah. how hollow it is. And so the Christian group tore down the one in California, which is the second one. The first one in Utah was torn down by a uh, guy named Andy Lewis, who is a slackliner. It's like an extreme sport, balance sport, kind of looks like tightrope walking. Um, Mm. but these people do it out in like the Utah desert and stuff and set it up over like these giant gorges and whatnot. But he tore it down with a group of people because it was in a delicate ecosystem and it had Mm. seen hundreds of people going to it. It's an area Um, where like less than 10 people would probably walk there in a year, you know, and so you, it's interesting to see it kind of being torn down by both that side and the Christian, um, you know, <laughs> reaction to it. But they're both kind of right. Like, they're both sensing this, like, weird, empty, artistic, capitalist uh, encroachment on space. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that. I saw in my doom, doom scrolling the other day um, the, uh, a headline that said that man human-made structures... Uh, now have more mass than the entire biomass of the oh, earth. Yeah, yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. So all the crap we've made now has more mass than all the trees, all the people, all the animals, bacteria, fish, and whales, and snails. Yeah. And I don't know what else, you know. <laughs> No, that, I hadn't. I hadn't heard that about the Utah one, though, Adam. That's really. I, I mean, I think maybe I saw it in passing and saw that someone had turned it down, but I hadn't or, or, or had torn it down. But I didn't realize it was for that completely fucking valid reason. You know, I'm 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 from LA, where the you know you have these great hiking trails, and there's there was recently. This is maybe like six months before COVID, but people were starting to. Um, wage a public campaign to say stop stacking rocks in this uh in uh, along these trails because they actually yeah. do create a problem for the, the natural wildlife around it i'm like huh i never thought it about causes that, a lot of like, damage yeah it causes a lot of damage which i didn't know at the time but also it's like you know once you think it through it's like yeah uh can you you know soccer moms need to stop acting like they're druids um so also that's a nice 
that's a nice little added bonus there. One of the things that Adam's getting at is like, obviously the environmentalists have the more legitimate, you know, claim to be yeah. angry at the obelisk or whatever, but that there's mm-hmm. not an entirely unlegitimate uh, anger at the obelisk from these uh, right wing fanatics, you know, like uh, from the mm-hmm. Christian. It is empty. It is soulless. It is, you mm-hmm. know, hostile to the landscape and so on. So, like, it gets mixed up. It's just like with the the far-right populism as a whole. It mixes legitimate concerns with illegitimate ones. Um, yeah. Legitimate concerns about the culture and capitalism and so on with their illegitimate bigotry and reactionary racism and anti-Semitism and so mm-hmm. on. So, I don't know. Doing an installation thing where you put those McDonald's kiosks everywhere would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I just thought that you like put one like just random see like who's trying to order a Whopper or not a Whopper but a Big Mac, a Big Mac when you but there's actually no McDonald's there. It's like uh, it's like but you actually like work it as like you have the other walkie-talkie or whatever and just like oh have God, conversations yes. with people. Okay, yeah, drive up. <laughs> Drive up to the second window. It's sixteen thousand miles away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's making me think of, of Adam's uh, uh, thing about uh, what was taken from us about the McDonald's and, and so on. Like, oh, you know, yeah, like, yeah, without you know, a doubt. And, yeah. and, and Kabakov says something so about like a nostalgia for a thing that never really existed. You know, because because yeah. he left the Soviet Union and it doesn't exist anymore. And mm-hmm. uh, while he hated life, he actually in the Soviet he kind of like. The propaganda, like we're all equal, everything's wonderful. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. that sounds great. It's just that's not what it was. Yeah, um, sure. And cool. like, and it, there's like similar things here for like, you know, like if you think back to like new the New Deal labor movement or mm-hmm. the high point of the civil rights, uh, the high point of the fruits of the civil rights struggle in the 1970s, um, mm-hmm. as contradictory and limited as as they were, and how that's now gone. Again, this relates back to Fisher, uh, who, who so much of his work was about a lot of us have nostalgia, not just for things that never existed, for a, a reality that never existed, but for a future that never came to be. Um, and that is, I mean, in some ways, I think what, what Kabakov's work did so damn well was that it encapsulated, like he liked the propaganda because he liked the hope that it imbued, the idea that human beings could have a future among the stars. That's something that all of us, frankly, want in, in one time or another. Um, and it was a very vivid hope to have. It's just that it wasn't in the cards for the Soviet Union for all sorts of reasons, not only that it, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall came down in 80, 89, but also even before that, what Stalin was able to do in the country was had already, you know, and... All the artistic symptoms of there too were there too, including the the suicide of Mayakovsky in 1930. Um, but Kabakov saw like this kind of deflected future and wanted to ponder that and negotiate it. One of the um, when I was in London back in 2016, uh, the Tate did. This was very interesting to me that they, they did a um, or no, this wasn't 2016. It was 2017. It was the centenary of the the uh, of the Bolshevik Revolution, so they had two um, two special exhibitions going on right next to each other. One was propaganda posters from the first fifty years of the Soviet Union, uh, which yeah, and I went to that and I'm like, okay, this is fine. It's just sort of a nice primer for what Soviet art was like during those fifty years, and it's interesting enough, but it doesn't really grab you. Next to that was a Kabakov exhibition that included, um, and I wrote actually about this for, for Red Wedge under, this, under a pseudonym um, because I already had something in that issue, but I'm like, we need to put this in there. So I wrote about it. Um, one of my favorite exhibitions in there, because it included um, The Man Who Flew Into Space, all of that, or a, a, a replication of it. Um, and also, but my favorite of it was... Um, not everyone will be taken into the future, which is just like some background of it. It was from when he was young in an art school and they did a drawing competition that he lost, which didn't, and the prize was like a trip to Moscow. This is before he lived in Moscow. Um, and 
so he didn't get to do it. And so his response to it, the, the, you know, that he built years later was like a literal like walk-in train platform that just had um, a bunch of like a bunch of his paintings that are like damaged and littered on the train tracks. Meanwhile, the train itself is driving off, and it's like you know, literal. Basically, he built the back car of a of a subway train or of a public transit train, and it just says over and over again the title of the painting on the uh, the 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 moving electronic lights on it before where you would put the uh, the destination of the train. It just says not everyone will be taken into the future, and so it's this idea that like public this idea that the world in which we live in is at once imbued with a future and at the same time completely completely absent of one. I mean, I think it's one of the great things about Kabakov's works. It, it does try to navigate that. Like, he, he was very, very conscious of futurity and futurelessness at the same time. This reminds me, I was talking to a, a comrade about what does it mean for social reproduction uh, theory um, in, like, an apocalyptic time if the capitalist class decides they don't want us to socially reproduce anymore at all. And it's... And I think we're seeing that in this pandemic. This pandemic is them saying not everyone gets to the future. Yeah. And of course, it's disproportionately working class people, poor people, black people. Which, you know, it's exactly who you think they would not include. Did we, were we going to talk all about the Trump protest and counter protest from yeah. last night? We should. So I think this yeah, it ties well. in. <laughs> Yeah, so it ties in actually nicely with everything we've been talking about in a weird way. Um, a lot of the clashes are around the Black Lives Matter Plaza, where the protesters have strung up all of these protest signs and artworks, memorials, um, you know, so it's like a gallery. And they're, the main conflicts have been from, you know, Proud Boys and other right-wing people protesters trying to come in and destroy this gallery so there's something there i think with the fact that you know the blm protesters need this gallery and it's like operating as a sacred space almost um mm -hmm. and containing you know the hopes there and then the proud boys etc are like need to tear that down they can't allow that um because like you know what does it accomplish them except terror intimidation and canceling someone else's hopes and uh you know imagination i think that's what it accomplishes them if i mean i think that you know like like urs fisher said art is magic not literally but might as well be and so if you're in a war with somebody you can't let them have magic well i guess maybe that's all the more reason we have to fight for it i mean again this references back to the first conversation that we we need those those spiritual particles that help us explain and defy regimentation and, and categorization because that's that's the stuff of human subjectivity. Definitely. That's probably a good place for us to maybe stop. Yeah. 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 Uh, but before we go, did you guys have anything that you wanted to, to plug for yourselves? Yeah, so this is Omnia Soul, and you can follow me on basically all the social medias at Omnia Soul Art, spelled O M N I A S O L A R T, on basically all social medias. And then my show comes out weekly, the Omnia Soul Art Show on YouTube. And I uh, found out from YouTube that you have to have 100 subscribers to get a custom URL. So there is no custom URL, but I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. And if you want to subscribe, that'll help me get to that 100. So then I can have a custom URL, which will be way easier to link to people. Uh, but yeah, and a weekly webcomic, ZZZZZZ, comes out on Instagram and Twitter, Tumblr, etc. And if you want to support either my show or the comic or any other things I do, patreon.com slash omniasoulart. Adam, how about you? Anything to plug? Yeah, I have uh, all of my artwork and sometimes I post poems there as well on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, my name is Dirt son of earth or you can use the at art dot o dot 
Dirt, D-I-R-T. Um, and that's where I post like my paintings and stuff like that. I do a lot of digital work as well. And then I do more politically oriented stuff with Mike Watson on the acid left. And we have Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube as well, where we do a reading group where we read theory and make means and art to go along with it to kind of interpret it. And we also do interviews there. And that's the acid left. Awesome. One, two, one, two, three, four. Thank you for listening to Locust Radio. Locust Radio is produced by Drew Franzblau with music by Omni Soul. You can find Omni Soul on Bandcamp, and there's a link in our show notes. Your hosts were Adam Turrell, Alexander Billet, and Tish Markley. Thank you for listening, and please join us next time. Mm-hmm.